Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast. Yes. I'm your host, Dr. Natasha Williams. And I am Stacey M. Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining us, joining yes. us this week. Yes. Blessings, blessings. We have a powerhouse of we a do. woman this week. Oh, we my sure do. goodness. Let me introduce you guys to Miss Anita Ewins. Okay. So, Anita Ewan is a 29-year-old mother of four children with one on the way. She is a social work doctoral candidate at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. Her dissertation research explores the racial gendered experiences of black women living in Toronto social housing and the effects of housing policy and neighborhood revitalization on their lives. Heavy. She is on track to graduating this October. Anita teaches at three universities and is also an ethnographer and research consultant with the government of Canada. She has been teaching for four years in the fields of early childhood studies and social work and has 10 years experience working with children and families. She has a master's of education in adult education and community development from the University of Toronto and a bachelor of arts in early childhood studies from Ryerson University. Mm. This woman is, is amazing. Just amazing. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear her oh. journey um, and the incredible work that she's, she's doing. doing. Oh, yes. can't wait. And the topics that she touches on too, which is, is sometimes we don't really, we don't really go there because we feel like maybe is it safe to go there? Well, it is because this is a space that we've created for that, a safe space for that reason. Thank you. I appreciate that you've, you've, um, you know, emphasized that because yes. I think her, journey and her story speaks to being in those unsafe spaces absolutely and what happens as a result of being in those unsafe spaces and not so much being in those spaces but also being hushed about it mm, yes hushed That's let's right. just keep it to ourselves let's hush about it this is one episode that you guys really really need to tune in i mean all our episodes you need to tune in but really tune in mm -hmm. i have the perfect quote for Anita. Mm, okay. And it goes like this. Every woman should keep a journal because in the long run, that journal will keep you. Oh, listen, <sighs> that quote is so salient and listen to this episode because this quote beautifully connects Anita's experience. So let's tune in. Let's go. Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. This podcast aims to provide a safe space that explores mental health within the Black community, breaks down the stigmas attached while taking back our narratives. We're, we're going to dive right into it, Anita, and we're going to ask you to tell us your story. Okay, um, well, I guess I'll just start off with, um, I guess, the beginning of my mental health journey. Oh, that would um, be great. Thank you. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, so at the age of 16, I lost my best friend. Um, she passed away. She was murdered. And then um, the oh following gosh. year, I found that I was pregnant. Oh. Um, so I think that's when a lot of my mental health um, symptoms were accentuated. And I went and I sought help. I think I spoke to my family doctor about like some of the feelings that I was experiencing and they referred me over to Cam H. Mm-hmm. And at that time I was um diagnosed with adjustment disorder. Can I ask um, you can I ask you a question? I mean and yeah. I I'm apologizing for cutting you off, but I think what I would love to because you know there's just sounds like there's a lot of rich information here and I mm-hmm. think the the audience would just love to know, you know, you, these are traumas, but I want to say traumas back to back. Being pregnant is not necessarily a trauma, but you know, mm-hmm. having your best friend killed and then finding out that you're pregnant like a year later, you know, these are significant things, you know, in a young person's life. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to know if you were able to sort of tell our listeners what were some of the things that you were experiencing? And it could be for like, you know, we usually as psychologists, we would talk about physiological symptoms or things that were going on in the body or thoughts that maybe you were having, or what were you feeling just to get a sense of what was your understanding of what, what was going wrong? Um, well, that's difficult to say. Like, I think that it took me a while to even just, except the fact that my best friend passed away. Of course. Um, I just know that the, the, my frame of mind slowly started to change mm. um, in between the time that she passed away and um, that I got pregnant. Like mm-hmm. that's when I realized that maybe that I was like kind of losing myself. Okay. Um, and I've been typically like, I'm typically a very resilient person, but it came to the point where I realized I couldn't deal with what I was feeling on my own. Like feeling overwhelmed? Um, yeah, overwhelmed mm. and just always in a state of panic, oh. like something was going to go wrong. Okay, okay. so it sounds uh-huh. like a lot of anxiety then. Yes, yeah, a lot of anxiety. And my doctor would always tell me that I had anxiety. Like he would make comments about anxiety when I would go to my appointment. Okay. Um prior to everything that happened. Like, I remember him telling me, like, oh, you're just anxious. You're just anxious. You need to calm down. Like, around the time that I was, like, 13, 14, and especially when I was 15, um, that was a... I, I remember him telling me a lot, like, you're just anxious. You're just anxious. But it wasn't until I went to Camish that I got a formal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So... It's, yeah, so, it's, so were, it's so interesting, you know, yeah. as you mentioned, your family doctor just saying... Oh, you're anxious. You need to calm mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, mm-hmm. to, this is just my opinion, you know, as a clinical psychologist. That sounds mm-hmm. very dismissive. Yes. You know, it really sounds like you're not, the doctor is not validating your experience. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if there's anxiety there at 13, yeah. then what is it that is making you anxious? I mean, and, 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 and you don't necessarily have to answer that question, but this just from as a clinician, the first thing that's coming to mind for me is, yeah. you know, why don't you explore what's going on with this 13-year-old? Mm-hmm. You know, the root of the issue. Well, thank you. Yeah. What is the root versus, yeah. oh, you're just anxious. Oh, calm down. Calm yeah. down. Oh, oh my yeah. God. Sorry. So, I, sorry, I just wanted to sort of mention that because that experience... 
Um, and what you just mentioned, I think, speaks to a lot of people, and mm -hmm. especially for our community, where yeah. we already have difficulty trying to open up or trying to seek help. Mm -hmm. And then when you're mm -hmm. actually going for help, you're being mm -hmm. dismissed. Yes. Yeah. So I just yeah. wanted, I wanted to bring that up because it, it hit me quite oh, for hard sure. for someone who's actually reaching out at 13 yes mm -hmm. um and you know all of a sudden is just like oh just calm down so at yep. the end of the day if you think about it the message that a lot of the that a lot of uh, professionals would, would give at that point in time mm -hmm. if they're telling you to calm down it's your fault mm -hmm. yes. something sure. is wrong with yeah. you yeah Right. So for you sure. need to calm down versus what mm -hmm. is really going on. So I apologize. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to to bring that up because I just found that that was such um, a, a, a powerful statement that you that you made. Um, sure. And it can really um, make the trajectory of what's happening uh, very realistic. Oh, definitely. And. Uh, if I can add on to that, that with that same family doctor, um, once I received my diagnosis, I had to go back to him to get my prescription. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I think that I was, he gave me Ciprolex, and I started off with like half, I can't remember the exact dose, but then I was on a dosage for about a week, and I went back and I told him it was working. And then um, a week later, he increased my dosage, and it just everything just spiraled out of control. Oh. And so I, yeah, I had my daughter at the time. By that time, I had my daughter, and um, I remember going back to the office. And I don't know if it would be um, considered a breakdown. I don't know if it would be officially considered a breakdown, but I do remember like really getting really frantic and upset and telling my doctor, like, I haven't slept in days and, you know, um, I, this isn't working for me. And I was yelling and I was with my daughter because at the time dad was away for school and I, I, like I was living on my own. So I didn't really have anyone to care for her at the time. So mm. um, my doctor actually ended up calling children's aid on me, telling me, telling children's aid that I was oh. screaming in front of my doc, my daughter and making her nervous. Wow. And, completely left out the details of the fact that he increased my dosage and that it wasn't working well for me. So I think that's something else that a lot of black women and black people have to go through. Like the minute we become diagnosed with something, we're also criminalized. And um, Facts. throughout this interview, I'll probably speak to the fact that we need so much more protection mm. uh, because I, yeah, I was thrown under the bus from that time and it was a terrible experience. Like children's aid is, <laughs> yeah, obviously not, something that anyone wants to hear as a mother or get involved with as a mother and you know the histories with black families and yes, whatnot so yes. that was the experience there so that can kind of show you the type of doctor that I was dealing with oh, and then after that shortly gosh. right after that incident he refused he said I'm, I'm no longer going to be your doctor you need to go find someone else so I was left without a doctor um you know obviously children's aid was called on me and I had to like find a way to navigate this mental health issue on my own um, so yeah, that's that. What <laughs> am I hearing right now? <laughs> you, ha oh my goodness! If you were in the studio, I mean, I, know. I my my jaw just literally dropped, dropped to the ground. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I actually more or less I'm pissed more than anything. I'm, yeah. I'm just mm -hmm. I'm really pissed. I can off. tell that you're really upset. Oh my gosh! I cannot yeah. believe. Mm -hmm. Now on top of this, you're 17 at that at this point or 18. 
Um, I think I was around, I was 18 or definitely past 18 because I had my daughter after 18. Okay. So Mm -hmm. it was around that time. I think she was still like before a year. It was before she was one year old. Um, At this point, everything is a blur, but definitely I vividly remember like walking into the office and, you know, having that moment and then feeling like so isolated and alone and betrayed. Mm. Um, Yeah. And if I wasn't as resourceful as I uh, am as an individual, I probably would have just, you know, completely given up. And I was suicidal around that time as well. So just imagine just being left without any type of medical support and then having CAS called, which brought up a lot of other, you know, bad histories and memories and trauma. So, yeah. So um, that was that. Can I? Oh, gosh. Um, Yes. So quick. Uh, quick question. I just wanted to take a step back for one second. Yes. When you had gone to CAMH, I knew you mentioned that that's where you initially got your first diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Could you just let us know? And maybe you said it already and I missed it. What did they diagnose you with? Adjustment disorder. Okay. So they they diagnosed you and then the family doctor was the one that was following your medications. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So, yes. Uh, so I just wanted and to then- let... Sorry, go ahead. Okay, no, 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 sorry, no, go, you can answer. The, no, uh, I, I, I just wanted to let um, some of our listeners know that that's what happens sometimes, is, is that yes. because, um, you know, you can see a psychiatrist, I'm assuming you saw a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. um, and usually the psychiatrist will do the assessment, uh, mm-hmm. the, the psychiatric assessment, they'll do an interview, they will do the formal diagnosis, and then provide recommendations so that the family mm-hmm. doctor can then follow up with the medication. So sometimes mm-hmm. you would still be followed by... Um, the psychiatrist and then other mm-hmm. times what they'll do is, is they'll write out the recommendations and the family doctor can just follow what the recommendations are. So just, mm-hmm. um, you know, just for our listeners to sort of understand, understand sort of, yeah. you know, sometimes how the system works. works. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, that, that's how it's supposed to work. But, uh, again, I mean, I won't say oh. anything further about the, the family doctor. doctor. Lord have his mercy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So you're in this space. You, now the thing is you you get this diagnosis and I'll be very, honest with you um a diagnosis of adjustment disorder in my in my opinion in my clinical opinion Mm -hmm. um now let me preface this before i get you know the the college calling me as a psychologist i do not prescribe medication so i'm not a medical doctor but i am a doctor um, mm-hmm. but you know, we diagnose, but we, we don't prescribe. So we can do everything a psychiatrist does except for prescribe medication. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just okay. want, want to preface that, especially to our listeners before someone calls, calls on me or something like that. But <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> usually the, you know, there's a, there's a variety of symptoms when you get a diagnosis of adjustment disorder. I think that's but, the first mm-hmm. time I've heard that the, one. Okay. So a lot of times adjustment disorder, it really means difficulty adjustment adjusting to a certain situation or circumstance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, for example, um, you know, if you notice that you have some symptoms of depression, so some of the depressed mood and whatever, but you don't meet full criteria mm-hmm. of having mm-hmm. a major depressive, um, disorder, we may say that, okay, because of, um, you know, the trauma that happened, she has some symptoms, she's having some difficulty adjusting, um, or, you know, you know, she's having a, a bit of a hard time handling everything. This is more of an adjustment disorder versus a full blown depression, or mm-hmm. sometimes you'll have an adjustment disorder with anxiety. So you have some anxious symptoms, but you mm-hmm. don't meet exactly the full criteria of having a full blown anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. Okay. Now mm-hmm. saying that, um, I've, I, 
it is rare for what, from what I know, to have such. Um, you said Ciprolex, correct? That that, yeah. they were, that you were prescribed. Unless the adjustment disorder was quite significant, usually mm-hmm. you try to address the situation mm-hmm. with through psychotherapy or some type of counseling Be- when you're mm-hmm. when you're diagnosed with an adjustment before disorder. Before prescribing medication, before for you prescribe, yeah, before okay. you prescribe medication for okay. it. Mm-hmm. Usually, mm-hmm. if you prescribe medication for something. It's major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. So, so now when you're starting to talk about having suicidal thoughts or whatever the case may be, that's not an adjustment disorder. Uh-huh. That, that, okay. like, so to me, there's already been a, 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 a something wrong with the diagnosis. Okay. okay. Right. So for me, when I'm hearing that, you know, you were prescribed medication and those kinds of, and then they upped the medication, that to mm-hmm. me is no longer an adjustment disorder. There's, there's either yeah. major depression or some sort of anxiety disorder mm-hmm. that is going on that requires that medication, at least as a, as a starting point to balance out, you know, the, the, the different, um, you know, chemical imbalance. Yeah. Like the chemicals, right. Okay. It's, it's to help to, ba- um, to balance the imbalance of the chemicals, but to have an adjustment disorder, Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time swallowing that one. Let's let, let's yeah. just put it that way. So, and then mm-hmm. to start off at a, so even if they give you a low dose, I will give them that much. Maybe they wanted to take the edge off of whatever, mm-hmm. but yeah. when you're now telling me that your family doctor's increasing your Ciprolex and you only yeah. have, you only have a, a diagnosis of adjustment. Yeah. I'm having a tough, I'm having a tough time with that. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I remember. And mm. then um, I did receive, because I was in, I started university right after I had my daughter. When my daughter was six months, um, I started university. And then I um, I received counseling through my tuition. Oh, so that's where, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Y- yeah, so that's where I was able to, they had a psychiatrist as well. And that's when I got my, I guess, second formal diagnosis of anxiety. Oh, and then the okay. other two... Um, conditions that I shared um, with you, but I'm not going to really speak to that right now for a variety of reasons. And yes. maybe it will come out later on. But I, I think that I want to focus mostly on anxiety because so, sure, that's like sure. central to everything. Right. Yeah. Um, so that that helped. Like, I'm, I'm if I didn't have um, my, the university counseling, I don't know where I would turn to. Mm. Uh, I know that CAMH definitely didn't work out for me. I didn't like the setting um, that I was in. So I, I know that I spoke to. I think it was a psychiatrist there. I'm not sure. I can't remember the exact individual who gave me the diagnosis, but I also did group counseling or it was some type of, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember just being in a room with about four professionals asking me questions. And I felt like they just opened up a can of worms and just sent me back out oh, without no. even. Yeah. So that after that experience, I, it was absolutely not from then. I refused to do any type of group or like that type of, you know, interaction. I, I always said that I only can work with one professional because I literally felt like a lab rat. Oh, I felt no. like I was being exploited mm. and I said, I'll, I'll never let myself feel that way again. Um, so yes, right of this university that I went to, they luckily provided the one-on-one. Mm. Um, and I used that all throughout and it was very helpful. It was really effective. I had a really good counselor and yeah, so that, that happened there. Um, and then it was when I went to, when I completed my undergrad, I went over and I, um, started my master's, I 
had to leave, obviously, my old counselor, and I had a new one. And it was, that's kind of when things were shaky. That's when I no longer felt that I could rely on the counselors at my institution. Because immediately, like, after the first meeting, they tried to diagnose me with personality disorder. And on top of that, give me, like, new medication right away. And I said, like, that frightened me. I said, like, first of all, like, with my experience in medication, I would never, ever trust a doctor or psychiatrist that would be so quick to give me a new um, or try to give me a new form of medication. Mm -hmm. But then also, like, with the diagnosis, the way that I was able to kind of accept the diagnosis that were given to me, um, because there is a lot of stigma. And, of course, I was worried. I was already being judged as a teenage mom. I didn't want to be judged for anything else. But I said I had to let this work for me. Like, this diagnosis, it gave me free counseling. If I wasn't able to have a formal diagnosis, then, you know, it would be hard for me to, like, even sign up for counseling. So I used it to my advantage in that way. Yeah, but there were also other things. Like, I got extra funding through tuition, you know, because I was using OSAP. And if you have a disability, then you could get extra funding that way. So I said, I'm going to make this work for me. But when I went to my new institution and I heard about these new um, diagnoses, I said, like, this isn't, it doesn't make sense, first of all. And second of all, there's no way that I can make this work for me. So no, absolutely not. And I even went back to um, my new family doctor at the time and shared that experience. Like, you know, that they tried to give me a new diagnosis and try to put me on, um, medication and my family doctor who I was getting along with at the time really well said that I made the right choice like they didn't feel like that was appropriate an appropriate um wow you know decision that that person made as well yeah so I'm glad that that happened because lord knows where I would be if I you know took on the new medication and whatnot right and that happened there um and then once I got into my doctorate I would say it was like a so from the time that I got the diagnosis and I went through all of that experience, I knew that there was the only way that I could like, kind of navigate these mental health diagnoses is if I once again took control of them. Okay. Um, and I just felt like I was doing that to the best of my ability. But then obviously starting a doctorate um, and being in a primarily white institution, of course, mm-hmm. we, we I, I'm sure you've had um, guests that speak to that. I, it yes. was just an entirely new experience. So... I just felt like there was a lot of pressure. Okay. Um, and once again, like I, there wasn't really anyone that I could re- relate to and anyone that I could kind of, you know, connect with because I did not have a counselor that I was using um, through that institution. I was no longer feeling safe to have a counselor through the institution. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, at, at one point in time, I was feeling really, really, really low and like really hopeless. And I just felt like my identity was just, you know, I felt like I was just devalued and um, there was a lot of racism and sexism that was going on. And and then one day, one time I went to an event um, for a black woman in academia Okay. and they, I asked a question and on spot, I started, I just broke down. I started crying. And oh. I think my question was what happens when you start to lose, you feel like you're starting to lose your soul. Oh and my goodness. yeah. Ooh. And I started just bawling my eyes out and I'm telling you, like, it wasn't even like, it was like automatically a group of black women at the event just came automatically and just came and embraced me. Oh, it's such a beautiful moment. I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Oh. Um, and I always feel guilty because, they were so helpful and they um, like, you know, came to my aid immediately right away. 
But because I've always been so occupied with raising my daughter and, you know, I'm in school, I, I wasn't able to maintain the connections with all of them that I wish that I could have. But I'm telling you, they saved my life. And wow. from that moment on, um, like I already I already had black women heroes from like the, from the day that I was born. My mom, of course, she's mm-hmm. a hero. But from that moment on, I knew that it would only be black women that would be able to like help me survive through anything that I was going through. And I, I was able mm-hmm. to reflect after after the way that they just swooped in and literally like without hesitation came to my my side and, yes. you know, um, just made sure that everything was okay. I had some of them visiting my home and oh checking in on me. Gosh. Yes, it was such a beautiful experience and I'll forever be grateful. Um, it was that time where I realized that, you know, it's so important to have people who you can, you know, relate to and rely on. And also it allowed me to once again realize that throughout my life I've always had, there was always been a black woman just there to just, you know, stand by me as one way or another. So that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, there was one woman, the woman, the, the woman who organized that event, she's still somebody who's very important and near and dear to my heart. I ended up naming one of my babies after her <laughs> because oh she, goodness. yeah, <laughs> her name is uh, Dr. Roberta Timothy. Like I have to give oh, her a shout out. Like, yes. I don't know if you all heard of I her. Know her. Oh, yes. Small world. <laughs> she is, Dr. I will forever Timothy be is amazing. Yes. Oh, yes. 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 So um, her African name, she goes by Zaire and my, my second daughter's middle name is Zaire. 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 But, yeah, okay. She, That's my brother's yeah. name. Uh, pardon? <laughs> That's my brother's name. I just oh, your brother's name is Zaire? Okay. Yeah, it's Zaire. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> so I named my, I gave my daughter that as a middle name, and she just has never left my side since then. Since then and, Beautiful. you know, is always there for me when I need her. And at that event, actually, there was actually one other woman who later on ended up teaching at an institution that I taught at. And um, it was through an email thread that I saw her speaking to, like, the group, and I reached out to her, and we've been, like, very good friends ever since then. But like I said, if I didn't have these soldiers standing beside me, then it, it would be entirely impossible. Like, yes, my, I have a psychiatrist now and they're working really well with me. And, um, I, I, I've shared with you that I've, I have I now I'm going on my fifth baby. So I've had four babies in like the last, Woo! you know, five years. Yes. Wow. Um, so, yes, yes. So of course there's postpartum and everything. And my psychiatrist has come in handy with that. And of course, the medical professionals, I can't undermine the work that they do, but if it wasn't for, you know, the woman that I spoke about throughout just earlier, I, I don't think that I would be here at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that there are significant flaws with our health, health system. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So one example I could provide is that with one of my postpartum, with one of my pregnancies, I was provided a sleep a sleep program where I was able to sleep in the hospital for one week to manage my postpartum. Um, and it did, it was very helpful. However, um, there was like a lot of racism that, was there. So when I, 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 at the end of my stay, there was a nurse that came in and she literally tried to like push me out. I didn't have it. My, my partner, dad was there getting the car and getting the uh, car seat ready. She tried to push me out of the room. What? Um, yeah. And you know, I just pushed out a baby and it's hard to walk, but she literally just tried to get me to gather my stuff and push me out of the room. And then even the way that they just interacted with my body, like without even my, without my consent, they would just open me up and like look at in the most sensitive areas. And, you know, just sometimes like they wouldn't check in to see if I've eaten throughout the day. So yes, they have certain things in place that are great for 
women experiencing mental health, but I just feel like certain people are still treated differently. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was provided a wonderful black nurse who also spoke to me about how she was aware of some of the differences that existed and how she was going through her challenges. So um, I just feel like a, a, a greater space needs to be open for black professionals, you know, to have more opportunities to work within their own communities. But also, um, yeah, like that, that, that's something that I'm really, I, I think that black women just need to be protected a lot more mm-hmm. yeah. um, because we are so vulnerable. Yeah, the minute we step outside, we're, we're vulnerable. So that's something that I can say. Um, right. And another thing is this, yeah, with these mental health diagnosis that I have, I, I feel like I've just, I've been managing, I've learned to manage them. Um, yeah, I was just about to say, Anita, how did yeah. you uh, address your issues? That was our second yeah, question. So, yeah. Um, you know what? Like I have, I think that I, I've learned to be very self-reflexive and I've learned to just look for certain cues. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I write in my diary all the time as well. So I, I consistently reflect, but um, so medication, I use it. Um, I, I use medication. I do have medication. Okay. But um, so that's something that has helped me. But there are also times where I find as though, my medication isn't as helpful and I've, I've, I'm confident enough to kind of wean myself off and be okay. okay. And I've had just even the other day, I had a conversation with my psychiatrist. We have our virtual appointments because of COVID, of course. Of course. But mm-hmm. she says that the medication that I'm using isn't even typical for the diagnosis that I have. Oh. Um, but it, since it's, yeah, since it's working, she just lets it, you know, yeah, you let not it go. Going to you let it anything. go. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that what has helped me is just taking control. One of my diagnoses that I haven't revealed is a lot about having control as well. And I think actually a lot of mental health diagnoses um, are related to just, you know, requiring a need of control because oftentimes the trauma and, you know, the pain that you've gone through makes you feel like you don't have any control. That's true. But um, that's what has helped me manage my mental health diagnosis, just making sure that I have control, that I am a, I am the first person to make any decisions about my um, health. Okay. And, yeah, I, I will share also one last experience I'll share is one time I did go to the hospital because I was in crisis, and I spoke to a doctor, and right away she tried to um, diagnose me with sleeping pills, I think, or oh, oh, you, oh, um, okay. some type of pills. And I was so taken aback and I asked her, like I was, I'm very outspoken as you can see and also very articulate. So I asked her, I said, why would you think it's acceptable to diagnose me with a medication within five minutes of knowing me? You know, you <laughs> wow. didn't even really wow. take time. And I kid you not, this woman ended up calling security on me, put me on a form. I can't even remember what that term is, but I have my babies at home and I know that for sure, there's no, there's never a space that I walk into where I don't share that I need to get home to my babies or that my babies are essential to me. But she knew that I wanted to get home to my babies and that the the reason why that crisis was happening was because I felt as though I wasn't a good parent. And she put me on a hold and tried to keep me there for 72 hours. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying this is what it's happened. A psychiatric hold. So what happened? Yeah. Now, oh no, what Lord. happened with that? Okay, so here's here's how a psychiatric hold is supposed to work, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, what happens is is that, and for, for us as psychologists, it's the same thing. If I have a client that I believe that is a, a harm to themselves or mm-hmm. is going to harm mm-hmm. somebody else, and if I don't feel comfortable enough so that for that client to leave my office because I think they're either going to harm themselves as soon as they leave my office, Mm -hmm. I call the police. 
Mm-hmm. And then the police then escorts that individual to the psychiatric department of what the nearest hospital, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they are then placed on a 72-hour hold, where then the psychiatrist mm-hmm. comes in, does an assessment, that kind of thing, so that they can ensure that the person is safe, safe. before. But the thing is, is that you you um you have a it's a maximum 72-hour hold, so that mm-hmm. all the assessments mm-hmm. can be done, but you're making sure that the person is safe. Okay. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think how it, the, it went from you questioning yeah. the yep. medication to yep. then being, I think, I believe it's a form one, um, yes. but to you, for you then to be formed mm-hmm. and then placed in the psychiatric department of the hospital. Yep. I don't yep. know. I, I don't see the connection. Mm-hmm. It was um, terrible. I'm, yep. I'm actually quite shocked. <laughs> Yeah. So these are our realities. I think I and I share this story to show you like why it's important to have people who can, you know, understand like maybe it was my mannerisms. This individual, this doctor was an Asian woman. So her excuse may be that she may not have understood the way that we interact with each other when we're agitated. But her specific words were you're agitated and you're getting upset for very small things. So I just don't feel as though you are ready to leave. And I'm saying, of course, I'm going to be agitated. I'm in crisis. Like, (sighs) isn't, you know, what do you expect me to be calm? So So, I made sure I took out my phone because there were literally like six security guards that came and she, she demanded that I, took off my clothes and got into a robe. I said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I said I was going to call a lawyer. Um, to, you know, I was just trying to like use every type of resource that I can to make sure that I wasn't going to stay there. Yeah. And then my doctor, my psychiatrist, the one that I'm still working with now, was, was affiliated with the hospital that I went to for the crisis. So thankfully, they were able to get a hold of her and one of her residents were able to come down and speak with me and then they let me go that same night. So, yeah. so, anyways, the, so to, get- to me, it, it, what it sounds like Mm-hmm. is the psychiatrist so remember i mentioned sometimes you get formed if you feel that the um your client Client. or your patient is at threat to harm of themselves or or that kind of thing that's the one way this sounds Mm -hmm. it sounds like the route that the psychiatrist took is that they felt that their own health Mm -hmm. or their Mm -hmm. own they were going to be at risk that you were going to become increasingly agitated or violent so the Mm -hmm. psychiatrist quote-unquote did not feel safe Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. is enough to have somebody formed and sent wow yeah wow yeah so yeah that's that's so, That's what had happened. So and, let, um, let me, yeah. let me, so our next question, usually what we ask our guests is, and I think you've touched upon it, but just so that yes. we can summarize sort of where are you at now? What, mm-hmm. uh, what, you know, what things do you have in place? What supports, how are you managing? Like, so it's a, it's a larger question, but where are yeah. you at now? You know what? The only answer that I could give to kind of respond to that is that I'm, I'm just here. I'm here and I'm alive. Mm. Um, I feel like it's going to be a lifelong journey. Yes, of course. Uh, unless someone comes up with like a miracle pill that kind of takes all my history away. Um, I'll always have to deal with this, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm taking everything a day at a time. Um, and it's kind of hard to kind of let you know exactly whether or not I feel entirely stable. Like I, I am stable, of course, because I'm, I'm managing it. I manage it, but I'm pregnant right now too. So of course I have my dad. <laughs> yes, um, yes. yeah. um, and then I'm still trying to finish up school and working. So, you know, um, that's another thing actually though, because I, I, and I, I spoke to this 
in the email that I sent you that I do feel that I am very stretched. I try to overcompensate, um, and I've been trying to overcompensate um, because I, I have a lack of self-worth, I, w- I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since the pregnancy diagnosis, uh, when I was a teenager, I think I always... Uh, I remember having a very close family member of mine telling me I was just going to be an, another statistic. Oh, so nice. I think that kind of, like, you know was ingrained and I've always tried to like prove myself and you know um so I've always been managing like 10 things at once and that is contributing to probably why I had like the crisis the, the, in that experience I just shared with you and yes. you know why I've I a lot of the um, other um issues that I've been experiencing with my mental health have occurred so once I graduate like right now actually and I shared this with you I'm on a self-healing journey and once I graduate my plan is to make sure that I cut down everything by half. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And another thing that I realized too, is that it's always good to kind of keep my eye on like the prize, I guess you'd say. And my prize are my children. Like motherhood is everything to me. And I remember even in elementary school telling people I was going to have 10 babies. (laughs) I promise I'm not. I'm not. I won't have 10. Five is good. Um, Motherhood Motherhood is everything to me. So I always have to ask the question is, how does this contribute to motherhood? Like I told myself moving forward, uh, every decision I make will go back to that. And of Mm. course I have to think of myself as an individual. Like I don't feel as though mothers should let motherhood encompass everything that they do. Um, So I have, but my, the, the one way that I realized or one way that I determine that I've been that I'm making a healthy decision is whether or not what I'm doing contributes to my um, healthy journey of uh, fulfilling motherhood for me and my children. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I, I definitely need to do. I, I need to cut my busy life into half. And I I've also come to the point now where I can say that I value myself and I love myself and I you know that I have that value. Um, it's uh, so. I think that's when, when, going back to your question about where are you now? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm at a point of I, I've reached a piece of, point of where I've started to recognize that peace is possible. I can't say peace is fully here yet, but peace is possible, possible. and that's what I'm aiming for. Absolutely, yeah, I yeah. love that. Um, Anita, what do you think? How can we? Our fourth question is: How can we change the stigmas of mental health in the Black community? Yeah. Yes. You know what? I think it's going to be a collaborative effort. So, of course, we have to do work within the Black community. And I know a lot of people speak to this already. The religion has a lot to do with it. So I had a really religious mom, and she told me just to pray the demons away. And unfortunately, when I was younger, I was considered a quote-unquote troubled child. I was always very active and feisty and stubborn. You know, also the fact that I was like very intelligent. I was often very bored and always found ways to entertain myself. But I remember people referring to me as like the demon child and things of that nature. So that was really hurtful to me. I think that needs to stop immediately, like full stop. Mm. Um, I I don't think it's effective. I I, I feel like faith has helped. Definitely, if it wasn't for my faith, I probably wouldn't be here either. But um, um, faith should not be used as a way to demean young children, especially, or our religion, I should say, should not be used to demean young children. And it shouldn't be a uh, uh, used as a tool, as a band-aid tool to kind of cover over any mental health challenges that, you know, you're going through. Absolutely, and of course, I hear you. Another thing that happened in the church is like, you, you hear about demon possession as well. So whenever I would speak to like certain people within 
you know, my church or in my family about like some of the things that I was experiencing, like, for example, even like suicide, it's always like, you know, don't let the devil whisper in your ear and mm. things of that nature. And that's frightening. So I didn't even want to hear about that. Like demon possession was like one of my biggest fears. So if every single time I talk about my mental health, someone's going to tell me that I'm either possessed by the devil or, you know, I need to tell the devil to go away. Obviously, that's going to prevent me from being able to open up and speak to them about it. So that's something that definitely needs to be worked on. Um, but outside of the black community, and I'm speaking to health professionals, anyone who's going to hear this, I think it's important to really consider race as a factor to some of the challenges that we go through. Thank you. Like one of, Amen. Yes, Amen. Yes. You have to consider it. Like, I know that I probably, like, m- right now my psychiatrist is a, is a racialized woman, but she's not a black woman. So she understands certain things, but obviously not to the extent that a black woman could. Right. Um, but I've been to other non-racialized psychiatrist where I'll try to speak about race and then their response is kind of like oh so you really feel like life is unfair and it's like no it's not that I feel life is unfair it is unfair unfair. these systems are unfair and you know these systems of oppression are very real it's not some type of you know um, abstract the phenomenon that's being made up in my head, like this is actually happening to me every day. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that health professionals really need to validate how much race affects our lived experience. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I feel like needs to happen. Um, And you know what? Another thing is as well, and I spoke to this earlier on, I, I would really encourage a lot more black people to start taking control of our mental health and like the professions, you know, we need more black people in the field of mental health so that we can help each other. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I would do um, to kind of help, you know, our community when it comes to mental health and maybe like integrating uh, mental health um, material into, I don't know, like parenting or even like early learning centers. I'm an early childhood educator by, I guess, trade, I guess you'd say. I did my undergrad in early childhood education. So just talking to young children about mental health and letting them know that it's entirely okay to experience certain things. And, you know, like when you engage with racialized parents, let them know that it's something entirely normal. Because I know that not only religion affects the way that people kind of conceptualize it, there's also certain cultures that conceptualize it differently. Mm -hmm. But just letting black parents know that this is very real and some of the experiences your children will go through will obviously have an effect on their mental health. So just be prepared to, you know, deal with that. That would be helpful as well. Just integrating it into our parenting and into our early learning development. And that should be helpful as well. That's what I would do. My goodness. You've spoken to so many. These are all amazing points. Amazing points. Yeah. I have a surprise question for you. Yes. And this is this is the part that I love to call the fun question part. And okay. as we wrap up this interview, how this question came about is one day I was at work and I went to the water cooler and I saw they had a little sign above the water cooler and it said to take something for your mental health. So they had different mm-hmm. words cut out. And it's okay. like, you know, you cut it out and you can rip that paper apart. And so I wanted to integrate this into our podcast and to ask our guest, what is one word, one single word that you can use to describe your journey with mental illness so far? Mm, One word. One word. Um, I'd say perseverance. Mm, Very nice. Yes. Yes, Yes, indeed. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate a bit? 
say that again? Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Um, I think it's, like I said before, it's a journey. It's ongoing. Right. I have to take it day by day. The fact that I'm here, especially with when you're someone that deals with suicide ideation, um, you know, just waking up every day and going on is, 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 is a, an accomplishment in itself. Yes. Yes. Um, but also another thing that I'll say is that mental health, I, 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 I would be, I don't think it ever stays the same. I think it changes as you get older, as you continue to experience different things, as you continue to like, you know, um, move further in life and let's say your, your job gets worse or maybe you lose your job. So you definitely have to learn how to persevere. And I would say resilience for anyone who's dealing with mental health yes. and they're still here. Resilience is definitely a, a big part of your life. You, it's, you're doing it. You're, you're resilient. You're here. You're strong. And yeah. Oh. So that's, that's why I chose that word. Oh. Yeah. Fabulous. I think those mm-hmm. are those words, those mm. two, even though you're supposed to pick one. But yeah. that's okay. <laughs> I'm, just <laughs> joking. I'm just joking. I'm just yes. joking. I'm just joking. Yes. But um but no, those those words I think really summarize your journey, what you have shared with us and what mm-hmm. you have shared with with our audience. So I wanna first of all take this opportunity to thank you so mm-hmm. much for your thank time, you. your yes. energy for you sharing your story and also know that sharing your story, I am certain has now, he has now facilitated the healing journey for somebody else. Absolutely. And for yourself too. And for herself. I was going to say the same thing as well, because as you are, as your words have now helped somebody, somebody else's healing journey, my hope mm-hmm. and my prayer is is that you that your healing journey continues because yes. being able to share that and be open and honest about it mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. all part of that healing journey. So I would like mm-hmm. to, you know, we would both love yeah. to thank, thank you. you. Thank oh, you. Oh, and I thank you too. I thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart for this opportunity. I think what you're doing is so important. So thank you for the platform. It's it's invaluable. Oh. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Anita. You've reached the end of another episode of the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener and you like the show, then please subscribe, rate, and review us on all the major podcast platforms. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Blind Stigma and join the conversation. Find out more about each guest and help us to change the stigma while taking back our narratives. This podcast is produced by What's Up Toronto and Stacey Ann Buchanan Productions.